The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It's man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. This is a special edition of the PFT PM Podcast, Saturday October the 28th. There will not be a Sunday edition. I guarantee you there won't be one. But this is six straight days of the PFTPM podcast. And this special edition comes because we've got a very busy guest, a guy who practices law on a full-time basis, and a guy who typically during the week when court is open is dealing with court. He's Mark Garrigus, the lawyer who represents Colin Kaepernick in his collusion grievance against the National Football League. Mark, good afternoon. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. And you're positive we're not going to have a podcast tomorrow. I'm positive I'm not going to have one. I'm positive because I'm okay. watching football. Okay. Tomorrow's all about football. The Good. other six days Good. is talking about football. Sunday's all about football. Got it. I'm with you. Now, part of my Saturday morning habit over the past couple of weekends is listening to the Reasonable Doubt podcast with you and Adam Carolla. And I learn a lot from that about a lot of things, including the reason I've got you on the program today. So I want to start with some follow-up as to some of the things you said in the latest edition of the Reasonable Doubt podcast, your remark about the biggest story right now in the NFL, the comment from Texans owner Bob McNair from the league meetings a week and a half ago that we can't have the inmates running the prison. You said that that's a smoking gun as it relates to Colin Kaepernick's collusion case. And I want to understand how the dots connect from what McNair said to collusion as it relates to Kaepernick. Sure. I think the um, people have said uh, all along, you know, do you think there'll be a smoking gun? I've said there doesn't necessarily have to be, but inevitably in high-profile cases, something comes out. Now, so that the people who are listening understand, for a collusion case to succeed, you have to show that there's either legally express or implied. Express is what people think of as... Um, a smoking gun, so to speak, where somebody says something. There's an email sent. Goodall, Goodall sends something. Or Jed York says, uh, like he did a couple of weekends ago, the owners should not be intimidated by Trump's tweets. The, the comment that McNair made is in response or was at the owners' meeting. It was reported in another um, very well-written article, and I wish I could give the guy credit who wrote it. You probably know who did. Seth Wickersham and Don Van Nett of ESPN the Magazine. There you go. And uh, they did a very nice and thoughtful piece about what happened inside of the uh, owners' players' meeting. And apparently that is what McNair said. And by the way, for those who listen and don't know the reference, the reference is originally the inmates running the asylum. The prison is not a expression. Inmates running the prison is not something that has usually uh, uh, used in the colloquial context. But to connect the dots, when there is concerted action, and so people understand collusion is roughly akin to what is known as conspiracy in a criminal case. And in a criminal case, you have to prove conspiracy beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's done every day in courtrooms all across America. 
and it's done with great efficiency. Prosecutors do it. They don't have to show that people got together in a room and did something. They can show that two or three participants in a conspiracy decided they weren't going to do something. They can show that people impliedly did it because they were hanging together and didn't want to do something. And in this case, that would be Jed York saying they were afraid of the angry tweets. We've already got, on March 20th, Trump tweeting out that and saying at a um, campaign-style rally, even though he was already the president, that he had basically given a forearm shiver, if you will, to the NFL owners, and that they weren't uh, going to be doing this anymore, and they weren't going to hire um, Kaepernick, and they would fire anybody uh, otherwise. His fire those sons of bitches rally that was in Alabama is yet another piece of this puzzle that you can connect the dots. And you will see where the day before that March 20th rally that Trump held, where he talked about the NFL, he was with an NFL owner the day before on a private jet. And so all when you put all of these things together, um, and then you will take the documentary evidence, and I'm not going to talk about that yet because the NFL has invoked the confidentiality of the proceedings in terms of documents that are produced or depositions that are taken or things like that. But I assure you we'll fill in the blanks and, and connect all the dots here. But it's a fairly simple um, kind of a uh, path that we're taking and one that prosecutors, when they're proving conspiracies, do all the time. And as it relates then to this idea of inmates not running the prison, I mean, I, I tried to wedge that into the collusion box as basically we do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, and we do it collectively if we feel like doing it collectively. And it feels like that's just the general manifestation of what you're going to try to prove, that as it relates to Kaepernick, they decided among themselves what they wanted to do, either expressly or implicitly, and then they went about and did it. That's exactly right. If, if this were a jury trial, that would be the lead and the theme of the opening statement. They consider the players to be the inmates. They're the ward, and they're going to run this, and there's the, this is how it's going to happen. Now, for those, and I'm going to anticipate, Mike, some of the comments that I see, whether it's from the troll farms or whatever, but some of the comments are, well, this is their workplace. They can do what they want. Well, the fact remains there was no policy. There still is no policy. In fact, that was what the upshot of the meeting. So you can't ex post facto after the fact, create a policy and use that as a pretext to not employ somebody. There's also National Labor Relations Board implications. There's all kinds of employment implications. And I understand that some people find it offensive, so to speak, that when they want to watch football, that there is a political statement. But this isn't like somebody is doing this in the middle of the game. Um, this is something, and this isn't a disrespect for the military. It isn't disrespect for the flag. It isn't disrespect for the country. You and I could disagree about whether you, Mike, would do it or I, Mark, would do it. But the fact remains is that we have a First Amendment, and anybody who really is a patriot and really believes in this country should fight to the death as all military vets and current military do to protect the idea of what this country is about. And this country is not about being a totalitarian regime. This country is not about uh, taking uh, and oppressing people and calling them inmates. 
uh, as if you've got them in a prison. But boy, that sure is a very evocative statement. One of the common responses that I hear from people who are opposed to Colin Kaepernick is the idea that other players who have protested remain gainfully employed. So how is it different as it relates to him? Because no one else has been shunned. No one else has been blackballed. No one else has been conspired or colluded against. What makes Colin Kaepernick different? Oh, I think that we can, uh, we'll be able to show that. I mean, I think, number one, the uh, anybody, the immediate response to that is, really, if that's the case, then please explain to me Arizona Cardinals. Please explain to me Miami Dolphins. Please explain to me Green Bay. Please explain to me Seattle. And most of all, for those of you who say, um, look at his record last year at San Francisco, my response is look at the San Francisco record this year. Well, and also his performance last year in San Francisco, when you look at how he did 16 touchdown passes, four interceptions. And we went through an extended period of time, Mark, where I believe that there were people with teams feeding to some in the media the idea that this is only football, this is only football. And in that time frame of March and April, I assume you're going to be looking for communications within teams, between teams, among owners, a wide variety of digital evidence as to what was really happening as folks were not considering Kaepernick for employment. That's exactly right. And I kind of danced around that because I didn't want to get into being the one to say it, but I can affirm that you're absolutely correct. I want to take this back to square one because it did surprise everyone two weeks ago when the news came out that Colin had, number one, filed this grievance, and number two, hired you, a very high-profile, well-known and highly successful attorney. How did the two of you get connected? As usually is the case, um, lawyers will refer cases to the office. I mean, clients usually know who, um, who we are, and Lawyers will generally make the first introduction. It's no different here. A lawyer made the introduction. I met Colin, met Nessa on numerous occasions. I uh, One of the great things about being um, kind of a uh, elder in the law, as I am now, is that I get to pick and choose who I want to represent. Um, and this was somebody that I was drawn to because he's thoughtful, he's passionate. There isn't anything... There's no guile to him. This is not somebody who is manipulative. This is somebody who is earnest and genuine and a thousand percent passionate. And he wants to play ball. And I, you know, as a uh, as as somebody who appreciates talent and the ability to to perform your craft at the highest level, I'm here to help him play ball. I think I said, I think you quoted or wrote that. You know, it's a very simple way for the NFL to solve this problem. The way to solve this problem is to let the free market work and let one of the teams sign him, because I don't think that there's anybody who follows football who can, with a straight face, make the case that Colin Kaepernick isn't one of the top 40 quarterbacks walking the face of the planet right now, and he should be playing. And so let the NFL call my bluff. Let them let the free market work and and hire him and put him on the field. And Mark, the great irony from my perspective as to the way the NFL could solve this, if indeed Kaepernick getting a job would end this, it, it almost is solving a collusion claim with collusion because somebody from the league office gets with a team and says, hey, you got to do me a favor here. We got to put the heat out here. We got to put this fire out. You got to hire this guy. 
And it is technically collusion if that happens. But if that would happen and somebody says, Colin, here's a job. And, and let me be more broad on this, Mark. What's it going to take for him to take an offer? Because th- there's there's just a general offer of a minimum salary. And then there's an offer of what you know would be attractive to him by way of a compensation level he'd be happy with. Do, do, do we know what he would take at this point by way of an offer from a team? It's above my pay grade as to what the terms of that would be, but obviously anything that uh, makes sense given what the market will bear. I mean, they, I follow casually what quarterbacks are getting signed for, what quarterbacks who haven't played recently are getting signed for. I follow what the contracts are for people who have played behind him recently in the last season or two. So whatever the market will bear. But, you know, the irony, as you pointed out, is delicious on a number of uh, ways. I mean, they have got their right now each Sunday as it goes along and each team desperately needs or you can anybody can a casual observer can identify teams that need a quarterback every week that goes by makes the case stronger for us. So it's collusion. If you do, it's collusion. If you don't, I mean, they have painted themselves into a corner um, and this normally happens. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a federal district court and listened to some prosecutors say uh, the, the, they brought this upon themselves. And that's exactly what's happened with the NFL here. They brought it upon themselves. Why they thought that this was going to be a good strategy or even a viable strategy is beyond me. But uh, we're not going away. Do you think ultimately there will be proof of express collusion, or is it going to be where you have to piece it together, circumstantial evidence, piece after piece, text after text, testimony after testimony, and it becomes something that whoever's making the decision on this can't come to any other conclusion other than collusion? I, I said it before, I'll say it again. Um, given the characters involved in this case, and given my experience doing this for almost four decades, every high-profile case, um, it ends up inevitably there. There ends up being a smoking gun, and I, uh, I'll go back. McNair's comments are about as close as you can get to somebody expressly talking about um, collusive activity. And if there is a text, email, or something of that sort, that just uh, is icing on the cake. You said on the Reasonable Doubt podcast with Adam Carolla earlier today that you're going to start with Bob McNair as the first person who's questioned. Jed York is next. You mentioned his connection to this, and then you're going to look into what happened in Seattle. Nuts and bolts, though, what are the procedures for getting these folks under oath? Because my experience has been really rich and powerful people do not like to submit to anyone's authority other than their own. They don't want to be questioned under oath. They don't want to have to answer questions. What what, what is going to allow you to question people like Bob McNair and Jed York? Under the collective bargaining agreement and the arbitration protocol, they have to submit. So uh, they can they can try. They can do it the easy way or the hard way, but we're not going away. Well, I assume that the NFL, based upon my experience with the way their lawyers operate, there's not going to be anything easy about this. It's going to be discovery dispute after discovery dispute. Who ultimately resolves when the NFL digs in their feet and says, you're not getting access to these phones, you're not getting access to the commissioner, you're not getting access to Bob Kraft, Bob McNair, Jed York, et cetera? Who's going to make that call? It starts with the system arbitrator, and uh, that's somebody that is appointed under the collective bargaining agreement, is already in place. And then ultimately, at the end of the day, as you saw with Deflategate, it, uh, everything ends up in the federal courts. What do you think happens from the standpoint of a timeline? How quickly will this move? We're moving as quickly as humanly possible, which is one of the reasons that we decided 
we had the opportunity, obviously, in discussing this and in deciding which way to go, to go directly to federal district court. But I thought that that would not be the quickest. I thought that getting into a collective bargaining agreement um, and using that uh, while unorthodox was the way to go, number one. And number two, it also, I think, speaks volumes about Collins um, real desire here, which is to get back on the field. I mean, this, uh, if this were nothing but a money grab, I would have filed in district court and we would have headed towards a jury trial and let a jury decide. But this isn't a money grab. This is a principled stand by somebody who wants to be back on the field. A couple of other things real quickly, Mark. You mentioned Jed York and his connection to this, the comment that we're not going to be intimidated by President Trump's tweets. I, I interpret that to mean that you look at his comment as indirect proof that there was a time when they truly were concerned about what the president would have to say, and that was the reason collectively why they stayed away from Colin Kaepernick? Yeah, there's an evidence code section that's called an adoptive admission. And when you adopt something by your statement, it's an admission. It's like an admission is not quite a confession, but it's admitting something. Here you've got somebody who says, um, who's one of the 32 owners, or CEO, I should say, of, uh, of the ownership, and he's specifically saying, um, that we owners should not be intimidated. Well, what does that mean? What's the predicate for that? The predicate for that is that we have been intimidated by Trump's tweets. Is termination of the CBA an actual objective of this, or is this just leverage to try to get Colin on a team? Well, if their collusion is... One of the reasons that the NBA, the CBA is at issue here is if you show that there is collusion, that will end up um, eliminating or voiding the CBA. Now, people I've talked to and, and who are much smarter than I am and much more versed in this tell me that this particular CBA agreement is the single worst collective bargaining agreement in the history of major league sports. And I've talked to people in other sports who have told me that and have said that contrary to the one prior to this, that this particular bargaining agreement is horrible when it comes to the players. And so ultimately, at the end of the day, somebody's going to wake up on the NFL side and somebody's going to say, hey, wait a second here. We've got quite a bit to, to risk here. Why don't we just drop our guard and, uh, and, let, uh, and let this young man play? That remark about the CBA leads me to another point. The NFL Players Association, they are somehow, some way, part of this, especially if it becomes an assault on the CBA. But they're not going to like hearing Mark Garrigus say that this is the worst CBA in the history of sport. What's your relationship with the NFLPA on this? And do they have to, at some point, get affirmatively involved in order to invoke the CBA termination provision? Well, that's a, um, that's a decision that's uh, made downstream, so to speak. And the NFL Players Association reached out. They uh, have made the statement that they are supportive, um, whatever that means, and I'll leave it at that. I mean, I understand they probably don't like me telling the truth, but unfortunately, that's what I'm going to do. I mean, it's not me. I'm gathering um, information to represent a client, and everybody I talk to uniformly says in football and out of football and in other sports leagues, this is the single worst collective bargaining agreement in the history of any major league sport. Mark, one more question for you. And I am going back to my, my days when I did what you do for a living and looking at my notes and cleaning up any questions that I had as you were speaking. You mentioned that the president was with an owner the day before he made his comments in March. Who's the owner that he was with on the private jet? Robert Kraft. 
How does he fit into this? Do you expect him to be deposed at some point? I think that that is clear that he will be, yes. His team clearly isn't one of the teams, though, that should have considered Kaepernick, but he's going to be in a position maybe to bridge the gap between the president and the other owners? Well, look, we have, by last count, seven owners. So what is that? You can do the math. That's just about a little more than 20% of the owners who gave $1 million to the Trump inaugural committee. I think for $1 million bucks, you generally have access. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mike. I got to jump. Hey, Mark, I appreciate your time very much. Perfect timing. I got a plane to go catch. I appreciate doing this, and we'll be keeping our eyes open on how this unfolds going forward. Fly safe. Thank you. There he is, Mark Garrigus, with some insights about the Colin Kaepernick. Collusion grievance. I got to run. I got to fly, literally. We'll do this again on Monday, five down territory. Enjoy week eight. Check us out around the clock all weekend long at profootballtalk.com. See you later. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.